August 31, 1854, events began to unfold in Soho, a bustling London neighborhood which catapulted its inhabitants into a nightmare and into the pages of history. Over the next three days, 127 people in the neighborhood died, and by September 10th, over 500 residents, many of them living along a short stretch of Broad Street, had died from a disease whose name struck fear in the heart of everyone at that time. The disease was cholera. Back then, cholera was a fairly new disease to Europe and the Americas. London had experienced a cholera outbreak recently, so everyone was aware of the devastation this disease left in its wake. Victims suffered from vomiting and diarrhea so severe that muscles cramped and organs shut down and all the while the afflicted were conscious and aware of what was happening to them. Sometimes, but very rarely, people did recover, but cholera was more often than not a death sentence that the Grim Reaper would collect on fairly quickly after you started showing symptoms. Young, old, rich, poor, powerful, and pitiful. Cholera didn't care. Cholera just killed. Cholera had actually been killing humans in India and Asia for thousands of years. Its cause remained unknown for all that time, but I'm going to go ahead and give that part away here. Cholera is caused by a bacterium named Vibrio cholerae. A particularly virulent strain of the unseen bacterium started a pandemic in the Pacific region in 1820. It briefly subsided before a second, more aggressive wave spread through Asia, Europe, and the Americas from 1829 to 1833. Another outbreak in England occurred from 1848 to 1849. And then, for a few years, the disease which took tens of thousands of lives seemed to disappear and the pandemic ended. The miasma model, which blamed bad vapors in the air as the cause of diseases such as cholera, was guiding scientific thought and public health theory when the outbreak started in Soho. And that's what makes the 1854 cholera outbreak so noteworthy. It was this particular outbreak that brought together a physician named John Snow, an epidemiologist named William Farr, and a neighborhood priest named Henry Whitehead. Together, they showed that the miasma model was wrong and that the spread of cholera and similar diseases could be more correctly explained by an alternative called the contagion model. This model said germs, not bad air, made people sick. The contagion model proposed that an unknown factor passing from person to person was actually responsible for the disease. Using this model, Snow correctly determined that a water pump on Broad Street, where many of the ill-fated residents got their water, that was the source of the cholera infections. His work led to the Soho Council removing the pump handle, which is considered a significant moment in the history of medicine, public health, and epidemiology. It's even remembered by the fittingly named pump handle lectures given annually in Snow's honor by the John Snow Society. I'm Phil Gibson, and welcome to Biota. In this episode, we'll focus on two important scientific concepts, systems and models. They apply to any scientific discipline, but I will be talking about them primarily in a biological context. A system is any organized biological entity composed of interacting parts that perform some biological function or activity. A model is any simplified representation of that system and can range from a scale model you hold in your hand to a mathematical equation. Systems-based thinking and the use of different types of models are central to the way that biologists investigate the living world, and they are definitely essential to making sense of what goes on during a disease outbreak. We'll look at scientific models, how and why scientists use them, and how they can help us learn about new pathogens, SARS-CoV-2 for example, 
and how to stop them. Before we go any further, I want to acknowledge the resources that I will be drawing from. As usual, information about how to find the references I used and other resources is given at the end of the episode. I want to particularly highlight the book Ghost Map by Stephen Johnson. This book tells the story of the 1854 London cholera outbreak and Jon Snow's work to find the source of it. Everyone should read this fabulous book to get the full immersion in a thrilling telling of the tale. But for now, let me give a brief summary of the highlights of the story. So let's go back to September 1st, 1854. At the time of the Broad Street cholera outbreak, the prevailing medical model of what caused cholera and how it spread was bad air, or miasma. Toxic vapors in the air were thought to be the cause of afflictions, and clean, fresh air was thought to be the cure. Many diseases were attributed to miasma. Supporters of the miasma model also contended that another key aspect in determining whether miasma could affect someone was their inner strength and makeup. A person's freedom from vices and their overall moral quality as a human, at least as perceived by the standards at that time, as well as social class and race were also thought to determine whether you were likely to get sick from different diseases through miasmas. So, in August 1854, we have an interesting mix of biology and bias setting a deadly stage for the people of Soho. Although steps had been taken to improve matters, the horrific sewage and sanitary conditions combined with the smells of animals and industry in many parts of London, gave the miasmatists all the proof they thought they needed to explain the causes of disease. Where did they get this idea that bad air causes disease anyway? It goes back to Hippocrates' book, Airs, Waters, and Places. In this book, he described how vapors in the atmosphere cause disease. He described how swampy areas, because they are full of scents of decay and decomposition, they were full of potentially lethal air you shouldn't breathe. Ancient physicians thought if something or some place smells bad, it probably indicates death, or at least something that can make you sick. I mean, that's logical. Decaying things smell. If water smells bad, you probably shouldn't drink it. If food smells bad, it might be going bad, so don't eat it. I mean, just think about the feeling in your stomach when you smell something bad. You feel sick and decide to wave off that ham sandwich that's been sitting in the sun all day after just one whiff. That was all the proof that the miasmatists thought they needed to say that bad-smelling air caused illnesses. They thought their model made sense, even if it didn't perfectly match what they experienced in real life. For example, regardless of the smell in the air, ancient people knew not to come into contact with someone who had leprosy. They knew not to touch the same things. Still, they accepted the miasma model, even if you had to twist the interpretation of your observations to make sense. Nobody questioned if their model was wrong. For a number of reasons outlined in Ghost Map that I really don't have the time to dive into here, Jon Snow realized how foolish and illogical the miasma model of disease was and why its predictions didn't match what was going on in terms of who got sick and who was spared. You see, Snow was also an anesthesiologist, so he knew how gases and people interacted. And he knew that gases didn't affect different people in different ways, like was observed in the supposed cases of miasma illnesses. Gases, he knew, affect everyone pretty much the same way. From his experience, the disease outbreak simply did not match what you would expect to see if cholera spread through the air people were breathing. Everyone should get sick, not just clusters of people here and there. Snow, like others, was beginning to apply a new model that suggested diseases were caused by contagious pathogens passed from person to person. 
syphilis, smallpox, typhus, and a number of other ailments were known to be transmitted from person to person only by contact and halted by isolation. This is something that didn't make sense under the miasma model. Yet the miasma model was held onto tightly by the medical and scientific establishment of the mid-19th century, partly because their observations kind of fit the model, but also because they had a number of biases against the poor and other groups that led them to incorrectly interpret what was happening. They forced the data to fit the model rather than reworking the model to explain the data. What Snow did to build his case that cholera was caused by a waterborne pathogen supporting the contagion model was that he looked at where the affected individuals lived as well as other data. Now this is where William Farr comes in. Farr was a public health officer in the General Register Office of the United Kingdom. It was his job to record deaths in London. What he did that was new was to include details in his records about the symptoms and causes of death. Snow took the information that Farr published, looked at the distance from the houses of the deceased to the nearest water source, and then talked with the clergyman Whitehead to gather essential data about how the cholera victims moved and lived in the neighborhood. In an incredible piece of detective work, Snow realized that only individuals who drank water from the Broad Street pump got cholera. Neighborhood residents who didn't drink from the pump, like workers at the local brewery who had free ale and drank water from a separate source, they didn't get cholera, although they breathed the same air. Snow eventually convinced local officials to remove the pump handle so no one could drink any more water from the pump. As historian Peter Vinton Johansson points out, here's where the story sometimes gets a little confused. The story sometimes gets twisted to say that Snow had taken a map of Soho and then added dots to see the pattern of death that emerged. It was then that the pump handle was removed, which stopped the disease in its tracks. Now, this urban legend form of the story is even found in some very prominent epidemiological websites. But, as the ghost map, different historians, and even Snow's personal writings point out, the cholera cases had already started to decline before the pump handle was removed. The water from the pump handle was the source of the lethal bacterial infection, but people had already stopped drinking from it, and the bacterial contamination had been reduced by natural purification processes by the time the handle was removed. Snow did prepare the so-called ghost map that showed how the infection surrounded the Broad Street pump, but that was not until after the outbreak was over. Regardless, it's a great story. It's hard to beat the drama of a lone doctor collecting data and fighting the establishment to stop a deadly disease. He changes minds to his new way of interpreting the world and helps the field of public health take a huge step forward to save lives. Hero status achieved. Despite Snow's efforts and his solid scientific data, it took several more decades before the contagion model and germ theory, the idea that bacteria and viruses rather than bad air cause disease, it took a while before those replaced the miasma model. Even William Farr continued backing the miasma model and didn't put much stock in Snow's ideas for quite some time. Unfortunately for Snow, his contribution to epidemiology wasn't recognized until after his death. There's another interesting aspect of the story that often gets overlooked if you ask me, and that has to do with the importance of models in science. We need to think very carefully about the models we use, the assumptions we make, and how we interpret the data we collect to support, modify, or reject our models. Let's take a minute to talk about features of systems and what makes a good scientific model. To do this, I'll use a non-biological example that everyone is familiar with, weather. 
Weather is an incredibly complex system of interactions among the atmosphere, Earth, the tilt and spin of Earth on its axis, the oceans, vegetation, geography, and many, many other factors. Even the physical properties of water and its behavior as gas, liquid, or solid are incredibly important parts of what makes weather happen. Because of this complexity, atmospheric scientists and meteorologists use models that consist of diagrams, mathematical formulas, and computer programs to explain how all of these factors we just mentioned work together to influence weather. They don't account for every single thing in the environment that influences weather in their different models, but they do include what the meteorologists think are the most important forces in that system. If the model correctly accounts for the different environmental forces and how they interact, it will allow us to predict with reasonable accuracy what our weather will be like. And this brings up something that is extremely important to remember. Regardless of the type of model, it needs to be an accurate representation of the system it describes. If it is, it will have predictive power. The model should allow us to accurately describe and predict what happens in the natural world. The better a model is, the better the observations, predictions, and data will all fit together. So let's turn our attention back to models and disease like COVID-19. It is well established that COVID-19 is caused by a virus transmitted in the air. Coughing, sneezing, talking, anything that involves exhaling droplets into the air can spread the virus. If you then breathe those droplets in or get them on your hand and then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth, you can get the disease too. Scientists are currently trying to collect data about how the novel coronavirus spreads in a population to infect individuals. Just like Far, Snow, and Whitehead, scientists are collecting all kinds of data to build a better model and figure out how to halt this particular disease that is causing the current pandemic. To study how diseases spread and what effect they have on a population, public health scientists and epidemiologists use what are called demographic models that break down a population into different categories like age, gender, race, or whatever categories the researcher thinks are important. Accounting for differences among groups can help improve the accuracy of a model and provide a much better picture of what is happening. Let's say we're making a demographic model of a new disease spreading at a particular rate in a population. To keep this simple, we'll assume it affects everyone the same way and that everyone who gets infected will infect only two more people on the day after they get infected. We can predict what the graph will look like as the disease starts with one individual, that patient zero concept you've heard of before. We'll plot the number of infected individuals on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. At the beginning, patient zero infects two new individuals. That means you'll have two new cases for a total of three infected individuals after one day. The next day, both of these new people will infect two more individuals for four new infections and seven infected individuals total. Those four newly infected people infect eight more, and the total number of infected individuals jumps to 15. There are twice as many new infections each day than the day before. By the time we get to day 10, we'll have 1,024 new cases. And if each of them infects two people, there will be an increase of 2,048 new cases the following day. After just two weeks, we'll have 16,384 new cases and a total of 32,767 individuals that have caught the disease. And on day 21, there will be 2,097,152 new cases and 4,194,303 total cases. You probably noticed a pattern here. 
Although the growth rate remained the same, with one person infecting only two new people, there was a rapid increase in the number of new cases each day. Our graph has an overall J-shape that really takes off around day 12, showing what is called exponential growth. This pattern of exponential growth can take a local outbreak to global pandemic proportions in very little time, depending on how fast the disease spreads. One type of demographic model that epidemiologists use in these types of cases is called the Susceptible Infectious Recovered, or SIR, model. It describes a population as being composed of individuals in those three categories, and it measures the rates or probabilities of individuals moving from one category to the next. This simple model can be used with these three categories or expanded to include additional categories, such as reinfections or immunized individuals in the population. The SIR model is a starting point for any epidemiological study of an emerging disease like COVID-19. An important part of the SIR model is a value called R0. That's a capital R with a zero subscript next to it. R0 tells us the average number of people that a typical infected individual will pass the disease on to. R0 in the model assumes that the population has no previous exposure to the disease, so no vaccinations or immunities. The size of R0 summarizes a combination of factors, such as how easily the disease is transmitted, how long an infected individual is contagious, population density, and things like that all into one value. If R0 equals 1, then an infected person will spread the disease to only one other person. The disease will spread to new people, but stay at a stable, low level in the population. If R0 is less than 1, then an infected individual will probably not spread the disease to another person, so it will likely disappear or stay at very, very low levels in the population. An outbreak is probably not going to happen. But what happens if R0 is greater than 1? Well, that's a big problem because now there's a possibility of an epidemic. Why? Because each individual can infect multiple more individuals who can also infect more individuals so we get an exponential increase in the occurrence of the disease. How fast the spread occurs will depend on how big R0 is. In our example, R0 equaled 2. Imagine what would happen if R0 is greater than 2, though. If R0 is double to 4 in our example, you get to over 1 million new cases on day 10 instead of day 20. And even if only 1% require serious medical treatment, that would still be 10,000 people. Now that your curiosity has peaked, what are the R0 values of some of the viruses we're familiar with? At the low end is MERS, a respiratory disease related to COVID-19, which has an R0 value of less than 1. Seasonal flu has an R0 value of 0.9 to 2.1. The virus responsible for the 1918 flu pandemic had an R0 of 1.4 to 2.8. Measles comes in at an astounding 12 to 18. What about the novel coronavirus? Its R0 is currently being estimated at somewhere around 3, which is high, although not as high as some estimates of 5 early in the pandemic. Remember that R0, like any statistic, has its limitations, but it does give us an idea of what's happening so we can build more accurate models and predict what will likely happen next. This helps us effectively plan for what to do. If you think about the R0 value and the growth model we have been using to describe its spread, you might start to realize that no virus can spread forever. No population can grow without limit due to lack of space or resources. That's true. That limit is called the carrying capacity. 
and scientists use it in different demographic models to account for the fact that there is a limit on food, space, water, or if you're a virus, potential hosts that prevents the population from growing unchecked. So what in the world can possibly limit the spread of COVID-19? Technically, the capacity for its spread would be the entire human population. But thinking about the carrying capacity for the virus really isn't helpful for us to plan and respond to a pandemic. Instead, what we need to think about is the number of infected individuals and the capacity we have to care for the sick. For us right now, the availability of medical resources is of critical importance. You can think of the number of hospital beds available in an ICU, the amount of PPE, the number of nurses and doctors available as factors that determine the carrying capacity we must consider when fighting a pandemic. So even if a disease has a low infection rate, or even better, a low mortality rate, what is critically important is how many individuals are infected at any given time relative to the resources we have available to care for them. If a disease spreads unchecked, you get a lot of people sick at the same time, and you may not have enough ICU beds to put them in. That overshoot of the carrying capacity leads to deaths that could have been prevented. Preventing that overshoot, keeping the number of infected individuals below the carrying capacity is the central idea behind what is called flattening the curve. In the absence of vaccines or other preventative measures, the only way we can slow and maybe halt the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the incidence of lethal COVID-19 cases is by efforts to reduce r not and slow spread of the virus. Social distancing, masks, and other measures can make it much more difficult for the virus to get from an infected person to a new host, which lowers r not. The disease might have a high ability to infect someone if it can get to them, but if it can't get there, no new infection. So how do we lower r not? Hand washing physically removes virus particles from the game. That's easy pathogen containment. The ability for some diseases to spread, particularly respiratory diseases, however, is influenced by population density. Higher density helps the virus spread. If there are a lot of people around, keeping a safe distance between them makes it harder for the virus to travel over those distances. In other words, keeping at least six feet between you and other people makes it much less likely that you'll become infected. This helps bring r not down. Another simple and effective strategy for disease control is wearing masks. Even if the mesh of a mask is larger than a virus, it can be small enough to catch most of the droplets and aerosols that viruses hitch a ride on when we talk, sneeze, or cough. Masks keep the number of virus particles in the air lower, making it difficult for the virus to get from person to person. Again, this reduces r not. That's why the combination of social distancing and mask use works. It's not politics, it's common sense and science. Granted, we are still working out the details as we continue to improve our current model of how this novel coronavirus spreads and how to control it. But we know that social distancing and mask use works to reduce spread of the virus, and consequently, the number of infected individuals requiring serious medical care at any one time. That can prevent overwhelming the medical system and causing deaths that could have been avoided if we'd had more resources. There is no doubt about it. We are still in the early stages of human interaction with this novel coronavirus. We're analyzing a lot of data and doing a lot of statistical analyses, just like Jon Snow did long ago. But we're not just looking at maps of homes around water pumps. 
These days, we're looking at maps of the coronavirus genome to figure out how to fight this pathogen. We're looking at how many people are being infected, how old they are, what comorbidities they have, the symptoms and consequences of the disease, all kinds of information. We are collecting and analyzing an amount of demographic data that would make William Farr's head spin. And although it's clear that this disease may not be as fundamentally lethal as other more common ones, but remember, we are still at an early stage of learning anything about that to be certain. But what matters now is how fast people are becoming infected, how many people are becoming infected, and will that number overshoot our carrying capacity of resources? We know that it is likely that everyone will eventually come into contact with this disease. Current trends indicate that many will become infected and have few symptoms. I hope it stays that way. But what we absolutely do not want to happen is to have the disease spread so rapidly that our medical infrastructure is overwhelmed. If we can slow the transmission of the virus so that there are fewer infected individuals at any one time, and therefore fewer individuals requiring serious medical care at any one time, we can make it. That's what our models, based on data, show. Just like with the London cholera outbreak, or any other epidemic or pandemic ranging from the Black Death and smallpox to more recent incidents of Ebola and Zika virus, there is a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. But at least we have a model that's working, and as we learn more, we can improve and strengthen our model. What is essential is that we keep a critical scientific eye on what's going on and modify our models accordingly. That's the great thing about science. When we get new data that don't fit our preferred model of how things work, we don't throw out the data. Instead, what science does is fix or throw out the model. Let's go back to Victorian England once more to illustrate my point. In 1848, James Gilchrist, Inspector General of Army Hospitals in the United Kingdom, wrote a book titled, okay, hold on, this is a long one, Cholera Gleanings, a family handbook enabling readers of all classes to judge for themselves of the great error into which governments were unfortunately led by men looked upon as infallible guides who very strenuously maintained the cholera to be a disease during which, quote, the living shall fly from the sick they should cherish, end quote. Whew, quite a title. It's a short read, though, only 86 pages. But in this little book, Gilchrist lays out the argument that many of the leaders and governments in Europe at the time did not do enough to control the spread and misery caused by a cholera outbreak. Gilchrist does an excellent job of describing everything that is known about the disease. One of the points he makes over and over is that the available medical data and even his own experiences with the disease in India didn't fit the miasma model. He argued that leaders and scientists should have done more to figure out what was happening because the miasma model and blaming bad vapors for cholera was clearly not working. And one more interesting thing he says is that governments dropped restrictions on isolation and allowed businesses to reopen too soon, which led to even greater spread of the disease and more misery. Sound familiar? Well, as poet and philosopher George Santayana was born just nine years after the cholera outbreak in London, once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So let me try to bring this all together and summarize what I hope you see as the take-home message. Models are incredibly important in science. Whether we're talking about a scale model you can hold in your hand or a set of mathematical equations you can run through a computer, good reliable models are an essential tool for learning and investigating. 
but models can also have an interesting grip on us. Models, like the Miasma model, are often defended and supported vigorously when they are in style, regardless of how inaccurate or even harmful their base structures and assumptions are. In some instances, incomplete information can result in an inaccurate model like Miasma. A willingness to adapt the model as new data come in can fix that problem. A much more insidious problem with the Miasma model and others at the time is that they rested on assumptions that were based on bias and prejudice. And that is something we must always be on guard against, or else science can be perverted in some really awful ways. Although assumptions often get a bad name, they are an essential part of the scientific process. The assumptions behind a model give scientists a starting point for what they're studying. The strength of a model is, in part, due to the strength of the assumptions it's built upon. But when those assumptions are built upon biases, the model will fail to predict or explain anything with accuracy and only serve to cause more misery. That's kind of serious, so let's try to end this on a much more positive note. Let's consider how Snow and his immediate colleagues, as well as many other scientists, have made contributions by finding the problems in old models and helping us build new, better ones. And remember how Snow and others demonstrated that as we do our science, no matter what that science is, we should do everything we can to ensure that we bring together the three essential components of systems-based thinking, experience-based learning, and evidence-based conclusions as we construct and use models to explain the world around us. I'm Phil Gibson, and this has been Biota. Terry Gibson helped with editing and co-writing duties for this episode. And a special shout-out to Maggie Gibson, who helped with some critical background research. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. Opinions expressed here are those of the author alone. A transcript of this episode and other resources can be found on my website, jphilgibsonlab.oucreate.com.